thanks for connecting with our online content at Holy Trinity Church in Richmond. We really hope that what we share with you will be a blessing and will help you to continue to grow in your knowledge and love of God. and change in a year, can't it? Uh, Especially when we look back at the last year, a year like 2021, an awful lot has changed. I think for us as a church, AGM Week highlights that as we pause and look back at the year that has been. It's a year where we locked down again. Our borders reopened to travellers, MIQ disappeared, COVID-19 turned up. A lot can change in a year, can't it? A lot can change in a week. The Gospel writer John highlighted that for us as we journeyed from Jesus' entry to Jerusalem to the cross. Do you remember that week and how much changed? Expectations had been riding high. Here was the Messiah riding into Jerusalem. He was the one who would free the people from the oppression of the Romans. We tracked the disappointment of the crowds who turned on Jesus crying, crucify because those expectations were wrong. Bishop Jay opened that for us a few weeks ago. And then we joined Mary Magdalene and Peter and John at the empty tomb, where their expectations weren't met either. Mary had expected to find a body in the tomb, but instead she'd learnt that Jesus was alive. Peter and John had expected to find a tomb that had been ransacked and robbed, But instead, John found faith and believed that Jesus was risen from the dead. On the evening of the very first Easter day, when the disciples were together with the doors locked because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, everything for them changed. All of their expectations were changed when Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you, shalom. In that moment, everything changed. They were now face to face with the risen Lord, who in a simple greeting, the word peace, signaled a new ultimate reality, that God's kingdom peace was taking hold in the world. In that same encounter, Jesus passed a mandate to his followers so that they might find their place, that their expectations might be reshaped within his new reality. We're going to explore those two lines of thought this morning. First, the peace that Jesus ushers in, Jesus' peace, and then we'll look at the mandate that Jesus gives, Jesus' mandate to his followers. But before we launch in, why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that you speak to us by it today. It is a joy to have our lives shaped and challenged by you, a God who speaks to us. We pray that today you would impress on our hearts the ultimate reality of your peace at work in this world and in our lives, and that you'd help us to live out a believer's mandate as faithful followers of the Lord Jesus. Help us to hear by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, when you think about the events of Easter, it's no great surprise that the first thing Jesus says to his followers is, peace be with you. It's been a time of great turmoil for the disciples, hasn't it? 
They're hiding behind locked doors because they're afraid of the Jewish leaders. They might be rounded up by them. In their minds, they could be very easily dealt with in the same way that Jesus just was. They could be taken and hung on Roman crosses. If Jesus, with his huge following, could be so easily murdered by jealous and corrupt religious leaders, then to snuff out this ragtag bunch of followers would take almost no real effort at all. They don't have a following. People have turned against them. But in a moment, their fear gives way to exceeding joy. Jesus appears among them. He is alive. He shows them his hands inside, verse 20, and he demonstrates clearly that he is the same one who was crucified. There is absolutely no doubt that their Lord, Jesus himself, stands before them in the flesh alive, but bearing the marks of the Roman cross and the soldier's spear in his side. Again, Jesus in verse 21 says to them, peace be with you. John is at pains to point out this greeting twice. He's highlighting something for us much more than the customary greeting of shalom. It goes over and above that. Once again, John is joining the dots for the reader and helping them to change their expectations of Jesus. Jesus had promised peace before. Do you remember in John 14 where Jesus describes the place he's going to go? He talks about returning to the Father. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, but believe in me also. And then near the end of that discourse, in verse 27, he speaks of his peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. In chapter 16, Jesus had been speaking about the coming hour of his departure. And in verse 33, he concluded that section with, I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In John's writing, there's a pairing of ideas here. He's helping us to see that the peace of Jesus comes only as a result of his death and resurrection. It's a peace above the natural peace that this world can give. We seek peace in nature, don't we? We get away from it all. We have a few days holiday, we take a rest, and maybe we go for a walk on the beach. There's peace that comes from owning your own home or having a secure job or good health. But Jesus is pointing to something else. He's describing a peace which is linked to the end of time and the return on the last day. He's signaling a peace that comes from a restored and right relationship with God the Father. He's signaling peace between sinful people and a holy God. He's pointing to eternal peace. The peace that Jesus announces, this shalom in their midst, is not just personal peace. It's the new reality of the kingdom of God bought with the precious blood of Jesus. It is a peace that exceeds their expectations. They wanted peace in their land with the Romans kicked out. And now they're being shown that the peace that Jesus really brings, the peace that is God's ultimate plan for humanity, for his whole created order, and in this moment as Jesus announces it, he proves it by being physically present with these ten disciples. Jesus is clearly himself, but he's also obviously different, isn't he? He's able to pass through locked doors just like he passed through the grave clothes that were left behind in the tomb. He is different, 
but he is unmistakably the arisen Lord. And bringing this peace, pointing them back to what he's done on the cross, he assures them of the eternal future that lies before them if their trust is in him. And as he does that, he gives them a mandate in the rest of what he says. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you, he says. And with that, he breathes and says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. I think when we slow down and consider these verses, we can be left scratching our heads. There's something a bit jarring here if we know our Bibles. How can it be that Jesus tells them to receive the Holy Spirit before the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost? There seems to be a disconnect. Is there a contradiction between what Luke records and what John is recording? Not at all. Do you remember last week when we considered how John's gospel comes at things from a different angle? He's showing us a greater theological implication above the detail. The breathing that Jesus does here doesn't seem to be him directly giving the Holy Spirit. And the reason I'm confident of that is because their lives carry on much as they were before. What kind of disciples would we expect to see if they were given the Holy Spirit by Jesus at this point? Would it be disciples who are still behind locked doors a week later because of their fear, which is in verse 26? Would it be disciples who slide back to their old employment instead of sharing the good news? John 21 verse 13. Would it be disciples who continue to make petty comparisons of their earthly credit before Jesus to see who will receive honor in his kingdom? John 21 verses 20 to 22. It doesn't sound like the spirit-filled life, does it? It doesn't fit with the transformed people that we see in the book of Acts and beyond who powerfully witness with joy in the face of opposition and oppression after they've received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost who gives them all boldness to proclaim the good news of Jesus. So what is going on if they're not actually receiving the Holy Spirit at this point? Their task the very reason that they will receive the Holy Spirit poured out on them at Pentecost is so that they might proclaim the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Jesus is signaling symbolically what will happen after they receive the Spirit. He is giving them a new expectation of their role and ministry and mission in the world. He is pointing to how he will enable them to witness after he ascends, which they're not yet expecting. Sin will still be absolved by the atoning death of Jesus alone after his, uh, after his ascension. None but him will be able to forgive. But they are being sent to proclaim that forgiveness and in so doing make others conscious of their sin. The heartbeat of these few words echoes John 15, 22 where Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for sin. J. Marsh helps unpack something that I think could be confusing. The reference in verse 23 is to forgiving sins or withholding forgiveness. But though this sounds stern and harsh, it is simply the result of the preaching of the gospel which either brings men to repent as they hear of the ready and costly forgiveness of God, 
or leaves them unresponsive to the offer of forgiveness, which is in the gospel, and so they are left in their sins. Those who reject the message of salvation in Christ alone do not stand forgiven. In this mandate, the disciples are being reminded by Jesus what their core business is to be. They are getting a new expectation of what life will look like post-resurrection. They're being reminded why they will be given the Holy Spirit so that they might proclaim salvation in Christ alone. We share that mandate as followers of Jesus. Is that our expectation? Often we have the expectation that the vicar or the ministry team will be out there sharing the good news of Jesus. But if we are following Jesus and building community, then this is the foundation on which we build together. All of us working to make the good news of Jesus known. To follow Jesus is to tell people this same message. And that is a risky thing to do, isn't it? To let people know that if they are not reconciled through the Lord Jesus, they are distant from God, that there is an eternal future that awaits them as separation from him, that is a risky thing to share. But as we take risks and share what we have gloriously received, we will see people responding to Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in their hearts as he brings his word to bear on them and change their lives. To build community is to grow deeper as we walk together, as we see people respond to that message and we welcome them into our church community and equip them and disciple them and walk alongside them so that they might have the same confidence in the good news of Jesus that we have as his followers. As we walk together, we will share the same peace that we ourselves have received as we build community. We will be a people of peace who look for resurrection and reconciliation. As we go through that hard work, not everyone we share the good news of Jesus with will believe. But some will. Thomas only believed after seeing Jesus face to face. His unbelief after rejecting the witness of the other disciples in verse 25 is changed, and he makes a stunning confession of who Jesus is in verse 28. My Lord and my God, he says. For Thomas, the evidence is beyond doubt. He must believe and he accepts that Jesus truly is the Lord of all as he sees him face to face. Jesus, the one who died and who has been raised bodily from the dead, gives Thomas new life. It is that belief, the belief which John desperately wants us to grasp at the end of verse 31 that he highlights. He says that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what we've been mandated to share, friends. It is that belief that Jesus is the risen Lord which changes everything. And that change, the promise of eternal peace with God through the forgiveness of sin, is an even greater change than the changes we've faced together as a church in the past year. 
in that change, our whole reality is altered, and we become the very children of God, given his spirit and empowered that we might be able to share the forgiveness of sin, salvation itself, and the ability for people who don't yet know Jesus to enter into a new and right relationship with our loving, holy God. It's quite a task, isn't it, to share that message? And for some of us, that is going to be a difficult reframing of the expectations of what we mean, of what we have, of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be a member of a church. That is going to be difficult for some of us to hear as we think about our responsibility, which is not just to be here doing this together on a Sunday, which we love and we have enjoyed so much as we've been able to meet back together. We've missed it, haven't we? Gathering together to worship God like this. But our calling is so much more, friends. More than running services and meeting together like this, our mandate is to share the good news of Jesus with those around us so that they too might come to know and love him. That is not an easy thing to do, so why don't we ask God to help us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that some of us have found peace with you through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Lord, some of us here might still not be convinced or sure, and we pray that you would help us to continue to investigate your word, that you would speak to us and help us to understand who it is that you reveal yourself to be, so that we might have that belief. We thank you that the Lord Jesus brings us peace, and that in him everything is changed. We pray that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to live out our mandate to be sharers of that same good news that we can be saved by the Lord Jesus alone. Would you give us courage where we are weak? And would you dispel our fears of rejection or judgment as you stand in our midst so that your kingdom would grow? We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. If you'd like to connect with more of our online content at Holy Trinity in Richmond, you can do that by going to our YouTube page simply by searching for Richmond Anglican Aotearoa. You can also touch base with us online at our website or on Facebook by searching with those same words. Friends, we're so thankful that you've joined us online and that you're enjoying our content. We really do hope and pray that God is blessing you through it. If you've got any feedback, you can touch base with me, zane at richmondparish.nz. Thanks so much for listening.